Hello and a warm welcome to Econoday Unplugged on Tuesday, the 16th of March 2021. Mark Penders, stateside, and I'm Jeremy Hawkins in London. So last week, the ECB did indeed put its money where its mouth is by informing financial markets that through the coming quarter, it would be significantly increasing its asset purchases under its pandemic emergency purchase program, so-called PEP, to try to put a cap on longer dated borrowing costs. And so far, the market response has been at least moderately favourable. However, should US yields continue to motor higher, increased ECB buying may not be enough to stop Eurozone yields being dragged up in their wake. So even more than usual, perhaps all eyes are on the FOMC meeting that kicks off today. Now, we've had a substantial new fiscal package from US and await what will presumably be a more bullish set of FOMC economic forecasts. So, Mark, do you think Jerome Powell could justify remaining dovish enough to stop US rising, even if he wanted to? Um, does he uh, want to uh, stop them in their tracks at the cost of... Um, of uh, backing off from where he's uh, stated. And also, there's a lot of uncertainty right now um, about the economy. So I think there's so much volatility and distortion and noise going on with the economic numbers, I think he can fairly take a pass uh, and uh, say things have to settle down right now that we're, we think policy uh, is in a good place. Uh, uh, the increase in long-term rates, uh, it, it lo- you never know day to day, but it, it looks to have uh, steadied a bit. So um, I think that that's probably going to be the uh, avenue he takes, like you say, in contrast uh, with the ECB. But it, in, um, to talk about, the, this is Tuesday morning um, on this March 16th, and we've had just a... Um, a flurry of odd numbers. We had retail sales just falling uh, very, very substantially uh, and and much greater than even um, the worst expectations, which is something to remember um, at the expectations level. Uh, and this was for the month of February. Retail sales fell 3%. Now, that's not too surprising given that the prior month, which was a stimulus month in January, was we, we got uh, checks in the mail, was... Uh, Seven revised higher to 7.6% from 5.3% initially. So, I mean, that is an offset. So those two months combined are still looking extremely strong. And with March now coming in, the new round of stimulus checks are in the mail. It looks like March will very likely be an extraordinarily good month, perhaps, for retail sales as, as these uh, maybe for the financial markets as well as the stimulus check flows into uh, 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 the stock market and speculative investments. So um, that is a very uh, odd swings that we've been seeing. And um, we also got it in uh, industrial production this morning, which just very similarly uh, fell 2.2%, which is way beyond the worst expectations. Now, these are forecasters. They're doing their best, but apparently they, they completely missed um, the weather effects mm-hmm. that hit uh, Texas, the power shutdown. Um, and without those, the Fed estimates uh, the decline would have been more like a half a percent. And, right. But in any case, they were expecting a gain of uh, – uh, 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 forecasters were, were expecting a gain of a half percent. So um, – uh, so we have these weather effects. 
we have uh, stimulus check effects, and we also have the issues with seasonal adjustments. Not that there's, it, it, it's no one's fault. It's just that February is the um, is of course the the uh, the fewest months uh, days in the month, and uh, and so you have to. That, that's a calendar adjustment. So you may, um, it's a very severe calendar adjustment. So that throws a little bit of clouds, a little bit of smoke and dust in front of what you're looking at. Um, and, uh, and, it, and so I and, and the other thing that we got today, which was kind of scary, which way he's going to have to pass on this is a uh, shot higher in import uh, and export prices. Import prices are, are very closely looked at and uh, they jump 1.3 percent in the month. If you look at the graph, all these things, I mean, they're going straight up. That's the problem with these inflation readings or some of them is that they're shooting through the roof. But they're only shooting through the roof for a couple of months. And and the level that they're shooting to is where it was basically a couple of years ago or before the right. pandemic. But we're making up that ground so quickly. Now, he's Powell's always already kind of prepared us for that, saying that there's going to be um, uh, comparison uh, 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 skewed comparisons, but those com- skewed comparisons aren't going to start until March, uh, and with the year ago when the lockdown first hit the U.S. So the February readings are <laughs> already being uh, incredibly skewed. So we're going to even get more of uh, what could be a shot higher for inflation. But Powell's um, definitive foundational view of prices is this uh, almost like an instinctual uh, base of expectations for prices. And after a generation of low prices, uh, it's almost like the archetype has been <laughs> affected in, in, in our brains and, and what we think inflation will do. So even though we're having all these uh, unusual spikes uh, in energy, especially on um, the import side, and uh, inflation in underway in energy prices, which was uh, made worse, of course, by the Texas um, shutdown and, and, and the regional shutdown. Uh, and, and in fact, the Fed notes in the industrial production report today of um, significant disruptions in the uh, South Central um, in, uh, petroleum infrastructure. So that uh, so anyway, so that is contributing. Um, and uh, to, to these distortions. Another thing that's contributing to these distortions, of course, are the supplier de- uh, de- delivery delays. Uh, and these are tied to COVID. Now, COVID in the U.S. is moving in the U.S.'s favor. It's coming down. Vaccinations are, are going up. So that's another thing that Powell can, can point to, that there's going to be this moderating effect or this uh, with this, these exaggerated numbers as the economy appears to be on a on a distinct path of, of as far as COVID goes of a diminishing effect. So um, it's going to be a touchy meeting. I don't think that there's going to be any policy changes. I don't think he's going to target the long rate of the market. They could, and they're certainly going to have to say something about it. I doubt that there will be any open um, uh, 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 you know, votes against um policy you, you, you that's a hard call or it's going to be one or two but yeah go ahead yeah can I, well, in terms of that can i ask you about you know this, this infamous so-called dot plot 
I mean, there certainly appears to be speculation that there may be more FOMC members now who are looking forward to perhaps you know, a tightening as soon as next year or certainly the year after that. Mm-hmm. So do you think there's a risk they might actually you know, be enough to push the median um, time for tightening closer to where we are now? Um, it, uh, it could be. Powell's on the record just a, a, a week or two ago repeating the, um, three, the 2023, he doesn't see, um, inflation getting to that 2%, um, right. ubiquitous 2% level until then you could see some movement, some, uh, a talk of inflation, uh, arising above that. Uh, and that I guess could be an unfolding issue. Certainly that would be a big uh, subtext if in the announcement there uh, there are you know uh, 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 you know concern that uh, the inflation pressures may be more than temporary uh, I doubt that that would actually be voiced in the announcement um, so I think what's going to happen is going to be you know full stimulus ahead um, and I and my guess is they're going to leave the uh, the long the long rates uh, alone. Now, you, but you have a Bank of England meeting, um, and uh, and you don't see any action there. No, in fact, it's interesting looking around sort of European, or well, let's say the major central banks at the moment. As you were saying, the Fed doesn't seem to be particularly concerned about the backup in yields. And it would seem from the, the comments we've had coming out of a UK central bank that they're very much of the, the same sort of sense uh, to the extent that they've seen what's been, well, amongst what the largest increases in longer data yields in the UK market for right, right across the main European markets. Um, the increase we've seen here has really been ascribed to the fact that, as you're alluding to, to. You know, we've got an extremely successful vaccine rollout at the moment. That's clearly had a major impact on expectations for how the UK economy is going to perform in the second half of this year and, and moving into 2022. And therefore, you know, it makes sense. It's justifiable that we should see you know, higher levels of longer term borrowing costs. So it certainly for now anyway, doesn't seem if the Bank of England is concerned about it at all. And of course, you know, historically speaking, when we look across Europe, I mean, bottom line is, you know, even if they've moved up, you know, borrowing costs are still exceedingly low by historical standards. Um, but otherwise, no, I think by, by and large, it looks as if the Bank of England should be a relatively quiet meeting this week. And they've got plenty of room left under their quantitative easing ceiling were they to want to step up asset purchases or something like that. They're currently running at what about 4.4 billion um, sterling a week at the moment. But I don't think there's any particular interest in, the, in them on their part to do that because the economy is not doing too badly. We know it, they expect to see a, a, a contraction of just over 4% a quarter on quarter in GDP in the current period. But if anything, that looks as if it might even be a little bit less than that or shallow than that, I should say, on the basis of the numbers we've had so far. So that's good news. Um, and most of the other numbers, I guess, have been you know, sufficiently close to or if not slightly stronger than expected that you know, hopes are definitely building. We will see this, this second half year rebound. So I think bottom line for the BOB at this stage is very much no change. So t- now tell us about the ECB last week and um, they're uh, increasing uh, or they're accelerating their emergency uh, as direct asset purchases under an existing plan. Did they actually say now uh, did they actually target uh, uh, long rates in their statement or in their commentary or did they just say that they're going to generally increase it with that being the assumption? 
No, though, what they haven't done, and I think probably quite sensibly, is to come out and intimate we have a certain level for long, longer yields that we don't want to see being broken because automatically then that just becomes a target for the market. So what they did do, they've used you saying, the, uh, the Pandemic Emergency Purchase Program for the PEP, which essentially is just a big fund um, which for which there is no monthly purchase rate or weekly purchase rate. So they can dip into and out of this according to how they see market conditions, which means that as of last week, they simply came out and announced that they are clearly, as they put it, monitoring uh, the backup in longer dated yields, and they don't think it's justified. Uh, therefore, they've indicated they will be significantly increasing uh, the purchases of uh, assets under the PEP over the course of the second quarter. I say there's no specific target for this, we don't know how much they're going to do. We'll just have to watch the weekly numbers coming in and see what we can glean from but it's, that. It's presumably going to be on the long end of the curve. Well, certainly, no doubt they'll be targeting at least the 10-year area anyway, and perhaps even a little bit further than that. But it's certainly going to be around that kind of maturity because that's the area they're most concerned about. It's very much sort of a longer end they see as being instrumental in in shaping the way that the flow of lending, you know, how banks set their interest rates and so on for their lending purposes. So that's the kind of area they're most interested in. But it's interesting, just going back to the, the inflation side, um, one thing that the BCB did say, and I suppose it's kind of fitting in with what you expect Jerome Powell to talk about later on today. I mean, Lagarde, it's the president, tomorrow. sorry, t- tomorrow announcement. Yeah. Um, Lagarde in her press conference intimated that there's a chance that inflation in the eurozone could move above 2% by the back end of this year, but due to only to one-off factors, so you know, changes in, in tax, or VAT, I should say rather, and the likes of Joan we've talked about before, reweighting the HIC basket, all prices and so on. But that's expected to be very much short-lived. So if it goes up to 2%, then expect it to come down again quite quickly. So very much the view of the European Central Bank currently, is that if we were to see, and indeed we probably will see, a pickup in inflation over the course of coming months, don't get too concerned about it because it's just going to be due to to various one-off factors. Um, The other, I suppose, big issue which I should talk about, which could certainly have longer term implications for um, what's going to happen in terms of a eurozone economy, has been what's been, I suppose, really a disappointing suite of of economic news um, concerning covid now, COVID cases, since we've last spoken, um, they were starting to move in the wrong direction for a number of European countries. And it seems now on the basis of the latest figures that what, around about three quarters or so of the EU are now seeing rising COVID cases again. But it's really only about what the UK and Spain, who are doing pretty well at the moment, and even with that tight group, there's only Spain in which um, cases are lower than they were at the end of last September. In Germany, the Robert Koch Institute for Infectious Diseases, which is one of the main medical centers there, they've come out and already declared that the third wave has started to hit Germany. Um, We've had what parts of Estonia running out of hospital beds, Uh, the Czech Republic and Slovakia have Mm. had to move COVID hospital patients to other European countries because they simply don't have the capacity anymore. Italy, as of today, confirmed there will be new regional lockdowns coming into place under full national lockdown over the Easter period. So basically, the bottom line in terms of the COVID figures at the moment, pretty well right across Europe, with the UK, the main exception, look Mm -hmm. pretty bad. Mm -hmm. Now, to make matters worse, 
as of yesterday, 11 countries, including Germany, France, Italy and Spain, have come out and said that they will be pausing the use of the UK's Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine over fears that it causes blood clots. Right at this critical moment. Right at this critical moment. Now, whether or not this is correct move, that's kind of down to the medical experts and perhaps some of the politicians as well. But although we've had the World Health Organization saying there's no statistical proof for this at all, we've also had the main um, European uh, medical bodies suggesting exactly the same story as well. Uh, the EU currently is operating on what they call a principle of precaution, which means they're going to stop using this vaccine. Now, they were due to acquire, I think, well, originally it's about 180 million doses of this vaccine during the uh, second quarter. That's already been reduced, I think, to 76 million due to um, delivery disruptions. But it means now that those things currently stand are not going to be used. So it's going to be a major hit to the vaccine rollout at a time, as we talked in the past, that the EU is miles behind the vaccine rate of the likes of the UK and the US as well. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, because we've got cases is moving back up again. Anything which detracts from uh, the vaccine delivery process has got to be bad news for you know, the Eurozone economic outlook. So yes. it's seen, so it's seen the bottom line to all this at the moment, to me at the moment is that, well, what do we got? We've got rising, rising infection cases, a decline in the vaccine, what will be a decline in the vaccination rate, a worse economic outlook. So all this talk about you know, the dollar you know, falling against the euro mm-hmm. this year, well, it's already proved wrong over the first two to three months. And if mm-hmm. it continues like this, the dollar could actually be you know, a, perhaps a significant net beneficiary. So the European politically, uh, uh, you know, policymakers at the political level, they appear to be cont- content or not content, but they appear to be prepared to extend kind of this in-between um, period, uh, a lockdown period, uh, until they catch up uh, with the vaccinations, presumably um, uh, sooner than later. But at the same time, you have um, countries less affected or, or, or decreasingly affected by COVID, the U.S. and the U.K., China. Um, they're going to be accelerating. Is this going to politically upend the stability of the EU? Is there going to be questions about their policy decisions? (laughs) Well, that is a very astute question, Um, not least because what we're seeing what's happening in Germany at the moment. Now, bear in mind, we've got the the big election, the German federal election, which takes place in September. And at the weekend, we had a couple of regional elections. Um, They were in Rhineland Palatinate, as they call it, um, and also in Baden-Württemberg. Now, we saw Angela Merkel's Christian Democrat Union Party suffering record defeats in both of those regional elections. And essentially, it's down to how the government's perceived to be handling, or perhaps I should say not handling, the COVID-19 crisis. So, you know, from what you're saying, I think is exactly correct. There's a lot of you know, backswell now against governments dotted right across Europe because of the slow pace of the vaccine rollout, which makes saying this news on the AstraZeneca vaccine, you know, even more of a hot political potato. And it really is starting to backfire on a number of these governments now. So uh, uh, clearly, um, we're not yeah, we're not talking about the German election, federal election until September time. So it's still what, half a year away or so. But if 
if you know, trends as we're seeing at the moment continue, um, Angela Merkel won't be standing anyway. And that's a big problem really for the current government because she is still very, very popular. But it does mean we could see perhaps a, a major change of government in Germany. Uh, and that might be reflected perhaps you know, as we start going over the next few years and other, other governments as well. In France, we have the next big election there in 2022. Uh, and again, France is amongst uh, you know, the worst performing countries in terms of the vaccine rollout. So it could well be this COVID um, crisis doesn't just impl- in, um, have implications for the way the economy is performing, but also fundamental implications for politics, too. And what about the implications for the cohesion of the European Union? Good question. I think that what we've seen increase, and I think we're going to see more and more of it, is that individual countries will be trying to look after themselves first. Um, and I think you know, the danger is where if there's going to be a, you know, a significant shortage of vaccine supply, individual countries can start trying to do their own thing. You know, the idea this is all supposed to be centrally controlled by the EU Commission, or at least parts of the EU Commission. But I think you know, if countries start to see national infection rates um, and you know, worst case death rates starting to rise again, it's going to be the case of, well, not so much one for all, but all for one, because be, people will be desperate to try and protect their own domestic populations. But right now in the Europe, in the in the union, there there's no one country or a couple of countries that are exceptionally exceeding or uh, uh, are 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 doing um, better or uh, are suffering less than COVID or are there uh, some that are suffering more or are they all at about the same rate of suffering? Um, I would say there's been a worryingly in terms of the, the poor performers, um, the sharpest, I think, turnaround, I'd say, from a country which you go back you know, two or three weeks ago and the numbers were coming down quite nicely in terms of infections um, is Italy. Uh, where we see an extremely sharp turnaround there. And that's partly due to the fact they start began easing some of the restrictions, really, I guess you've got to say, with COVID rates still too high. And that's, say, being reflected now. We have the new Prime Minister, Mario Draghi, from the, previously from the ECB in situ, and he's very much cracking the whip. So he's now announced, as I mentioned earlier, that there will be these much tighter restrictions coming in, a full national lockdown over Easter with a bid to try and get these numbers back down again. Um, Germany's view, although they're probably one of the best performing countries at the moment, their figures have also started going up again there. And their government's view is, well, look, you know, we can't start easing yet because the numbers are, are simply too high. Um, and even those and, countries like the UK, where the, the numbers have come down significantly, they've come down from extremely high levels. And the bottom line is you look at the you know the slope of the curve and think, well, that's got to be good news. But even here, things are starting to flatten out a little bit. And that's with a very good you know, vaccination um, rate going through. I noticed today France has apparently discovered a, a new variant, which is you know, the first time it's, it's, it's been seen anywhere. So yeah, at the same time as you've got even those countries where the vaccine vaccination rates are going up, it's a race against time to try and you know, mm-hmm. outpace the ongoing mutation of the, of the original COVID, COVID variant itself. Mm-hmm. But right now, economic data out of Europe is, would you describe it as stable and acceptable? I think so, yes. I mean, first quarter growth is still looks like it's going to be a negative, but I don't think it's going to be a big negative. Um, it's difficult to say because, you know, we're, we're still sort of relatively early in March and it's unclear just how bad an impact of some of these restrictions are going to be. But I suspect, again, if we look at how the eurozone performs versus the US, there's going to be very much a, you know, a clear growth gap in favour of your side of the water. 
So I think mm-hmm. in terms of you know the dynamism in the economies at the moment, mm-hmm. although Christine Lagarde is trying to do her best to talk up the second half year economy for the eurozone, it does seem as if the uh, the US is still well some considerable way ahead at the moment. One other country, I suppose, in terms of who is doing well, which you certainly mentioned before we uh, were round things up, uh, Canada. The employment report there last week was really quite exceptional. It showed uh, an increase in employment month on month of almost 260,000. Now, OK, that came after a cumulative drop of slightly more than that in the previous two months. But it's taken the unemployment rate down from 9.4% to 8.2%. That's the lowest we've seen since March. Um, it reflected restrictions being eased in a number of regions, uh, notice, notably Quebec, Alberta, New Brunswick. Um, and it fits in with the idea that by and large, perhaps you know, the same as, as, as the states, Canada has reacted and responded to the coronavirus a good deal better than many of the industrialised countries. Consumer confidence at its highest level now in more than a decade and as we you know, keep on talking, it really is. It keeps this speculation going that the Bank of Canada will start tapering fairly soon. Their next meetings in April. I kind of wonder that might be a little bit too too early, but there certainly could be some talk about it then. Um, so you so, think they're going to be the first major central bank that uh, begins the. I think they're going to be amongst them. I mean, to be honest, you've got to think that the Bank of Canada at the moment is looking over its shoulder at the Fed, because one thing which the which the BOC is worried about is the strength of the Canadian dollar, which is extremely strong at the moment. And the risk for them, of course, is if if you're mm-hmm. right, and let's say Jerome Powell basically says nothing, we're going to stay soft, and the Bank of Canada starts to taper, even though it simply means you know you're you're reducing the pace at which you're providing liquidity into the system. Mm-hmm. You know, markets off. I tapering that means tightening me the next move and therefore people start buying buying the Canadian dollar again so it goes up even further mm-hmm. so I think there's a lot of countries who might want to consider tapering in due course perhaps later on this year or just be hoping that the Fed makes the first move first mm. And on the which note, we should also quickly mention Japan, since we've done another potentially important central bank meeting there. Um, there'll be the uh, findings of the policy review into monetary policy, which was announced back in December time, because um, there's been a lot of criticism on the BOJ out there um, for distorting markets because of their massive uh, reflation program for mm. quantitative easing. And I certainly talk that they may perhaps move away from quantitative targets um, for some of their quantitative easing more towards, you know, dipping in and out the market as and when they think it's necessary. Uh, that may or may not be the case, but it could be particularly with regards to their um, their, their, their purchasings of ETFs, so the electronic the exchange traded funds, they might do mm-hmm. something with that. So it's worthwhile keeping on the BOJ. It's unlikely to do anything major, but certainly a possibility that they could do a bit of tweaking in terms of their policy uh, back end of this week. Okay, what else should we be mentioning, if anything? Anything else from your side? I'm just relatively quiet term the numbers up on my side. Well, I guess for the Fed, I guess it is um, does um, do the does the FOMC think that the rise in long rates where it is now is it going to um, significantly uh, slow or upend the economic recovery? In a way, it's helping. Um, you know, bring off some of the steam off the housing uh, sector. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We had the housing market index today, and it's super elevated at 82, one of the you know strongest readings, but still well down from earlier peaks uh, uh, in the mid part of, in the second half of last year. Uh, so that is actually probably beneficial. 
But with all these stimulus checks flooding in, I mean, this is this is <laughs> this is you know hitting the gas in a major way. It is showing how powerful it's not just monetary policy, of course, it's also fiscal policy. But monetary policy is always kind of given the the more powerful of the two. But fiscal policy now is like it's trying to to match the uh, the effect, and we're going to get more distortions with when these checks come in, mm. and. Um, I can't imagine it would be bad for the dollar, but uh, it certainly is going to be good for all different kinds of uh, spending. And also the savings rate is going to go you know, even even higher. People aren't going to know what to do with – you know, there's a lot of pe- disadvantaged people and a lot of people in trouble in this country. But they're, they're, they're mailing out the checks to a lot of people who aren't having trouble. So that's the well, other Well, side. that's true. I mean saving rates everywhere are through the roof at the moment, aren't they? You do wonder what's going to happen mm-hmm. when those rates start coming down again. Well, presumably they're going to have to tax – um, to to get some of this money back, I guess people would be uh, it'll be drying out of their savings. Uh, who knows? Mm. Okie dokie. Um, oh, I should just quickly mention since we've been talking about all these central banks, um, uh, who ta- who's going to taper first? Well, we do have central bank meetings out of Brazil and Turkey uh, this week on Wednesday and Thursday, Thursday respectively. Both now um, are expected to raise interest rates. And that's very much a reflection of the pressure on the currencies being brought about by the upward move we've seen coming through in US rates and yields. So just goes to show what's happening in the States, very much having knock on effects right around around the world at the moment. Okay, let us make an end to it there. Um, on behalf of Mark and myself, as always, thanks very much for listening. Podcast will be back next week, but in the interim, of course, you can find everything you need to know about key market moving data and events in our very user-friendly Econoday Global Economic Calendar. We'll see you next time. Bye for now.